everyone suddenly. I hope that means more than a mere good morning to you. This is the world's best blessing. May the refuge of the noble Triple Gem always be with you. You begin to realize the profoundness of this blessing when you look around you as well as look at yourself and the life that we used to live me probably one of the best examples i can i can offer and then you look around you and you observe how people still strive to look for happiness by engaging in meaningless endeavors someone told me recently that now there's a class in society called the ultra rich yeah i have nothing but love towards them because you know i have respect towards them because what it shows us is how much people are focused on the pursuit of happiness how focused they are how committed they are because otherwise they wouldn't do that you know money drawn grow on trees it is through hard work through labor through diligence and the application of one's effort knowledge and so on that one comes across fortune whether that is due to hard work in your one of your previous births or in this one you only get what you deserve you don't just get what you desire that is not how the world works but the very fact that people feel that they have to engage in such endeavors in the pursuit of happiness earns my sympathy someone showed me a video recently and i thought i should show it to you one day i didn't have the time to prepare it for today maybe i will one day the lifestyle of the ultra rich i have respect for them because what they're trying to do is to achieve happiness and everyone's entitled to that i mean what are we doing it's the same isn't it striving to achieve happiness what are they doing striving to achieve happiness what is a beggar trying to do the same in this world every living being not just man every living being is on a quest to try to achieve a happiness in the way that they know how to do the problem is only one of those ways is correct every other way is simply a means to an end and that end is simply a futile end how people you know those days they used to own cars and bikes and so on and now today they own yachts not just one but several and they live a lifestyle which is uh, the envy of most people and you got to have sympathy i think you know by now that when i speak of such things i don't speak out of envy you do know that don't you it's not like oh how i wish i could also achieve that but you know sour grapes 
If I wanted to, I'd be there. But I have realized that not a shower of gold can satisfy the human soul. Because sensuality and whatever path leads to sensuality is not a path to contentment. It is not a path to fulfillment. It is merely a gesture that scratches a rash that gives you temporary relief, not a permanent fix. So there's only one permanent fix known to man, known to the devas, known to the brahmas. We needed the great father, the great teacher, who was referred to as the Devati Deva and Brahmati Brahma, because he was a teacher to all. Satta Deva Manusa, teacher to devas and men. Teacher because he taught how one should achieve real happiness. That is what we have all come here for. Our good fortunes, our good merits have led us all here. Some have taken the short route, others have taken the scenic route. So therefore, for some, it has taken a bit longer, including myself. It took me, what, 25 odd years or so to encounter the Buddha's teaching. But then look at that child over there. He's taken the short path. If you ask me, he's the luckiest man in this room right now. Such is life. The merits that we have accumulated throughout our lives, when it's time to reap its rewards, then it will come. And for those who have a lot of merits, it will come in the guise of the Buddha's teaching. So that is what we are here for. May the Buddha's teaching heal you. May the Buddha's blessings see you well. May it guide you. May this infinite wisdom with which he proclaimed the truths and laid bare so that mere mortals like you and I, who are not a par with the wisdom that he possessed, but we have the fortune, the luck, and the merits to be in the presence of his teaching and the teachers who are prepared to share his teaching with us. So reminding ourselves of that good fortune Today we bring our palms together in veneration of he who is the magnificent one, he who is unblemished, he who is unparalleled, he whose virtue is limitless, whose compassion knows no bounds, he who is the epitome of perfection, the supremely enlightened one. As we do so, let us also remind ourselves that this is our, our opportunity to renew an oath, the pledge that we have taken upon ourselves to walk the path that he has taught us so that we can achieve the same bliss, no different, the same bliss as our teacher did, our master did, our father did, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Namo 
भगवतो अर्हतो The simple fact is, ladies and gentlemen, that happiness has always been with you. It is such a shame that we feel that happiness is something that has to come to us from the outside world. Therefore, we open our eyes in the hope that through our eyes, these portals that we have on our heads, happiness will one day reach us. So we are left longing for it. We keep trying, relentlessly. That's why you have a TV at home. That's why you have 165 channels on TV and a remote set, which you can use to jump between those channels, ever hopeful that one day I will find this channel. One day they will air this program live that will satisfy me and make me content. Do you know how many channels there are all over the world? Those days they could do terrestrial channels, but now that's no longer possible because they have taken up all the airwaves. So now they have to do satellite channels. Soon enough, they'll start airing channels on Jupiter. When it's not enough to feed the eyes with what happens on Earth, they will need to start streaming from the other end of the solar system. Because the human soul cannot be satisfied by sight. But when did we ever discover this truth? Now you have the Dhamma, but just take yourselves back to a time where the Dhamma was not part of your lives. I mean, they were certainly a part of my life. There was a period in my life where the Dhamma was just, I'm a Buddhist, so I have to go to the Hampasal, so I did. And uh, that's it. For about 13 years of your life, you have to engage in some form of Buddhist study. They had a textbook, which they said at the end of the year, you'll get an exam. So make sure that you study them and buy hard the stanzas and learn the Buddha's life from start to end. And you'll be questioned on how many lotuses he set foot on the moment he was, he was born. And if you get the answers right, then you are qualified to pass on to the next grade and then to the next grade and then to the next grade. And then finally you can get to university and then you can get a job so you can earn some money and make a living for yourself, and then die. <laughs> the same as you were born, crying. See, Buddhism didn't offer me any, anything. That is because I, didn't, I hadn't understood what real Buddhism was. Buddhism as a religion is one, but Buddhist philosophy, the teaching of the Buddha, the teaching that cuts through the veil of ignorance, it's so sharp, this, this tool of wisdom. It cuts through the veil of ignorance and brings to light the real source of happiness and what it is that keeps you from it. So you see, I think you'll agree with me. Our lives were spent trying to achieve happiness from the outside world. This is why you have a TV at home. There's no doubt about that. If you just imagine walking up to your fridge right now, at home, open your fridge mentally, see what you have in there, and ask yourself honestly this question, was it, did you buy them just to satisfy your hunger, or is there an instrument in your jaws which seek the delights that these things in the fridge promise? If you take the box out, it'll say delectable cookies. 
tantalizing ice cream. That was not to satisfy hunger. But if you ask the Buddha, what is food for? And the Buddha will tell you exactly what food is for. Food is to say to your hunger and repair your body so that it is fit enough to be a vehicle to carry the, the, the mind so that it can go on to achieve ultimate happiness. But unfortunately, that is not what people use food for. Food is the worst thing if used incorrectly. Food is good for you, and food is equally bad for you. Used, used wisely, it does a lot of good. Used badly, it does a lot of damage, a lot of harm. Today, I believe that most people are ill, not because of cancer. Most people are ill because they're diabetic, high blood pressure, cholesterol, and so on. They can't be blamed, really, because they had no one to guide them. If you walk into the supermarket these days, right, and you look at the things that they have on the, on the shelves, and the advertising that goes on out there, again, once again, I'm not finger-pointing at anyone. I'm just saying this is the way the world works, and I want you to, I want you to contemplate on these and, and realize the truth so that you can free yourselves if you want to. I mean, that is totally optional as well. If you feel this is, this is fine the way it's going, right? whenever you feel that you want to satisfy yourself, you open your eyes and you walk outside and you look at the world out there, or when you want to satisfy yourself, you listen to some music, watch a film and satisfy yourself, and you feel, if, if you feel that, that is, that's going fine, you know, it has its ups and downs, but I'm happy with that, then you needn't look any further for answers. You've got it cut out perfectly. But, if you feel that there has to be something more meaningful than this, the purpose of my life cannot be the same as my pet dog at home. Just think about it. For most people, their lives are spent almost the same as the pets that they keep at home. Yes, there are some differences, a few differences, like they don't take, have an education. But what is the education for after all? so you can do the rest of life comfortably. Well, they get to live a comfortable life thanks to your education. Yeah, they didn't have to go to school because you did it on their behalf. Now you have to do a job to earn a living, but Tommy at home, he'll just be in his kennel all day. You'll feed him the best dog food you can find, and he doesn't have to work a sweat. You're there, you're there to feed him. You build him a nice home, keep it cozy. On Christmas, you probably even give him presents. Do you send him Vesak cards as well? I don't know, just, <laughs> just asking. Maybe on his birthday, put on a party hat, get out a cake, light a candle. But he doesn't have to work at all. So where does human life defer to that of an animal? How does it differ? If you're not clear with our purpose, ladies and gentlemen, your life will just pass by, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. I'm reminded of one of Guru Hamdra's sermons recently. He asked this question. You know, why do people light candles on a birthday cake? 
Is it really a moment for celebration? He asked. You know, if you're 40, what say you light 40 candles, what are you celebrating? Just think about it. Why are we celebrating? Why do we celebrate in that way? Because that's what we've learned from others. Never really understood why you light a candle and blow it out, right? Why, why do you do that? I mean, why? What, what's the meaning behind it? What gives? Don't know really, but that's what people do. That's what society does. So therefore, you follow suit. In fact, what are you really celebrating? The fact that 40 years of your valuable life has passed by. I don't, I'm not sure whether that is a reason to celebrate, a reason to sing a song and clap your hands and throw a party. I mean, if time went the other way, understood. Right? Every year as it passes, you get another year to live. Then fair enough. But all the candles you've, you've lit and blown out by this point, all the cakes you've cut celebrating birthdays by this point, all the anniversaries that you've spent together and celebrated, How much fuller lives has it afforded you? How fuller are your lives as a result of that? You know, these are the questions we need to ask ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, because it is our lives we live ultimately. You know, it might be that someone else writes a script, but it's our lives we live, isn't it? You can't just turn around and say one day, ah, I know, it didn't work out really well. I'm, not, I'm nowhere closer to happiness than when I started, but what can I do? It was someone else who wrote the script. You ask them, why did you tell me to do all these things when none of them actually helped me achieve a happiness? They'll say, oops, sorry. That's all you're going to get. That's all you're going to get. People believe that the purpose of life is to enjoy as much as they can, sensual delights that the world promises to offer. And in pursuit of this illusion of pleasure, many valuable lives are spent, many valuable years are spent, but nothing gained in return. So it's about time that we opened our eyes to the truth and made a decision about how we want to live the rest of our lives. None of you are too late. I always say this, none of you are too late. Because every chitta is a brand new chitta. Right? In this moment, you are born again. And in this moment, you have the opportunity to make a difference. Not just in the world out there, but to what's going to happen to you tomorrow. You can decide that today. For those of you who believe in life after death, plenty of opportunities remain. But whether you're going to live your lives happily or whether you're going to suffer later on will all be determined by the choices that you make today. What I'm asking you to do, ladies and gentlemen, is to take responsibility. You know, we often take responsibility at the workplace, don't we? We are responsible for filing the report on time. We are responsible for submitting the accounts on time. We are responsible for our students' education, making sure that they get the right grades. We are responsible for our children as parents. We are responsible in that way. If you are the leader of the country, you are responsible for the running of the whole nation. You're responsible for all that. You're responsible for the upkeep of your property. All that you're responsible for. 
But there's one responsibility that we often tend to forget. And I'm here to remind you of that. When you fulfilled all your responsibilities to every man and dog around you, what about the one who stands in the middle with no one to look after them? How many mothers, I ask you, pass away every day? Having lived hopeful that by getting married as a young girl, by having children, then they're not going on to having grandchildren, building up property, earning wealth, that they were going to be happy and successful. But how many mothers die every day on the deathbed, weeping? Why does a mother deserve that? I mean, she's a mother after all. Here's someone who sacrificed her life and limb, every drop of blood in her body. She sacrificed her soul to her family. Mothers in the house, don't you agree? Have you not given up everything that you were made of? For your children, for your family, for everything you cared about? Do you think as mothers you deserve to die? Crying? Weeping? Wailing? So, so what are you going to do about it? Ask yourself, how did your mother pass away? Ask her how her mother passed away, if she's still alive. Why, why do we let these things happen to us? I ask the fathers in this room. Every, every bead of sweat that you shed, you did on behalf of your children, you did on behalf of your family. You were genuine to your family, wholeheartedly. You sacrificed everything that you had. You sacrificed your friends, you sacrificed your hobbies, you sacrificed doing the things that you love to do on behalf of your families. I ask you, do you deserve to die crying? Becoming a father, what did you want? You know, as, as a couple, one day you'd have decided, right? Now that we've been living together, uh, now that we've been husband and wife for the last two years, let's bring a child into this world. You'd have thought that one day. I speak to the mothers and fathers in the room. You'd have thought that one day, so that we can be happier. Didn't these thoughts run through your, through your minds? So that we could be happier. Life doesn't seem to be full. It's not complete until we have a child. So you brought a child into this world. And that's great. And then you sacrificed everything. From head to toe, every ounce of energy that you had. You know, just think about all the comforts you decided it was it. You know, I, I now have to give these up. Whatever, even the little comforts in life, you had, to, you had to sacrifice them because now you are going to become a mother. You, you are now going on to become a father. A lot of sacrifices had to be made. Seeing friends, those days it used to be every other day, but then it was cut down to the weekends. And then soon enough, it was going to be every other weekend. Soon enough, your friends began to wonder whether you were still alive. Remember? Hey, what's up? Haven't heard from you in a while. Are you still alive? Well, you know, I'm a daddy now. 
Gotta be with the little man. He needs me. But I ask you, why did you decide to bring, be, be, become a father? Fathers? Mothers? Why did you decide to become a mother? Because you wanted to be happy. You wanted to create happiness. That's what you wanted to do. You wanted to be responsible for your own happiness. And so you made that choice. And I respect that choice. Nothing wrong with that choice. But my question is this. This is my peeve. My peeve is, why is it then a mother, a father, a man and a woman who sacrifice their whole life in the name of creating and fostering happiness, why is it that they die crying? Where did we miss the trick? Hold your mother's hand when she's on her deathbed and ask her, Amma, are you happy? She'll either be honest or she'll be kind to you. One of these two things she'll do. Having always been your mother, having always been the one who would stomach the pains and the grievances and, the, and, 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 and bottle it all up, being the mother that she's always been, she's not going to tell you the truth. She said, Puta, with you here holding my hand, uh, I'm happy now. And then the moment you look away, and the moment you leave that room, just keep your, and you close the door and keep your ear to the door. You'll hear a faint sob. You'll hear her sobbing. Don't walk in at that moment. She wants to be left alone. Because you've just reminded her that she has not really achieved much in life besides becoming a mother. The purpose of wanting to become a mother has not been fulfilled. And I feel for those mothers. I know how much my mother sacrificed on my behalf. You know, the two of them, they had no need whatsoever to leave their motherland, to leave the comforts that they were well accustomed to, to leave their families, to leave their relations. They'd built a good life up for themselves. But they thought that for my betterment, for my good, they'd have to take us and travel somewhere else. So we migrated. I have seen from that day how much they have suffered as a result of that. Those who have done, gone through this journey on behalf of their children will know what, exactly what I'm talking about. Will know exactly what I'm talking about. Because, you know, growing up, especially in your teenagers, you have your friends, you have your comrades, you have your colleagues, you have your university friends and all that, right? You, you build up the, the, the fabric of society in which you grow up. You know, you, you weave that fabric where you grow up and where you want to live and where you want to die one day. But it's like uprooting yourself from all that. It's like trying to uproot a plant that has grown fully and then try to plant it somewhere else and expecting it to root. Nine times out of ten, it dies. Because it's one heck of a battle now. The environment is against you. I remember how he, my, my parents had to brace the cold winters. Not something they wanted to do. 
Their bodies were not built for that stuff. They grew up eating kolamallung and polosmallung. Not eating the stuff that was needed to, to you know, brace the, the winters. They were not made for that. But the winters would come and go. No friends. You know, back in, you know, let's go back a generation or two. People were very close-knit families, weren't they? Today, people are stuck behind electronic devices. You don't even know the, the faces of the friends who claim to be your friends. You just know what their Facebook profile looks like. You don't really know whether they're the actual people there. But back then, you know, a couple of generations ago, if you go back a few generations, people lived, you know, they, they lived as close-knit families. Sometimes several, several families lived under one roof. They used to have bungalow, bungalows back then. These days you have little flats. Those days, right, if, uh, my mother, she, she had 11 children. 11 children. No, no, not my mother. <laughs> my mother's mother. <laughs> my grandmother. She raised 11 children. On my father's side, the same. I think eight or nine. And they all lived together until they decided that, you know, independence was the essence of life. And so therefore, everyone left the poor parents who wanted to be happy, and that's why they had the children. And they went out and looking, you know, for expecting to live alone, independent lives, and started to build, for, uh, build a nest for themselves. But for my parents to uproot themselves from this, from this environment, and then on our behalf, take us to a land where they never dreamt of setting foot on, on our behalf, and then having to acclimatize not just to the environment, but also to the, also to the culture. Can you imagine the culture shock? Must have been for my parents. Having, what, spent 40 odd years in this sort of culture, and then going there, and then experiencing that. I mean, going on holiday once in a while is one. But then when you have to go and live there, and your neighbors pretend like you don't know each other. <laughs> Here, right? Everything for everything. Like you have nosy neighbors. But you're grateful for that. Yeah? Not, you know, you're never going to hear of one of your neighbors having passed away three months ago and this body is still at home. <laughs> but these things are not uncommon in some of those countries because people are very independent. You mind your stock. Hmm? I'm not saying that's bad or wrong. It's not my place to criticize any culture. What I'm saying is that is the way that is. I'm just trying to make, I'm just trying to highlight the fact that this is the sacrifice that my parents made on my behalf. And if mine did that for me, I'm sure yours did that for you as well. In this way or in another way. My question is, why do parents deserve to die crying? When the whole purpose of bringing a, a, a new life into this world, if you ask them, they'll tell you, it's because this is what's going to make me complete. 
They don't deserve that. But most of you in the room are either mothers or fathers, or you will go on to become mothers or fathers if we don't catch you before that. So if you are mothers and fathers, or if you are, if you are planning on going on to become a mother and a father, then while you're doing that, I ask you, just doing that alone, do you feel is going to fulfill the purpose of your life? Bring your life more purpose. Have more meaning in your lives, ladies and gentlemen. You know, can you, can you begin to care about you as much as I do? You think, how can you care about me more than I do, Swami Nasa? I am the one who cares most about me. <laughs> You'll think that until you realize exactly what it is I'm trying to get across to you. You think you care the most about you. In fact, you are the one who cares the least about you. Because if you think about how you spend your days, how you think, how you spend the last, just think about the last week, ladies and gentlemen, just how you spend the last week. You did a bunch of things for others, right? You did what you could do for your husbands. You did what you could do for your wives. You did what you did for your parents. You did what you did for your children, for your relations, for your friends, for your neighbors, right? For your colleagues, for your coworkers. You did all these things. And then you also did a bunch of things for yourself you thought you were doing for yourself, like pleasing yourselves when vexation started building up inside of you, relieving yourselves from vexation. That brought you nowhere near happiness. I'll prove this to you. Name one thing that you've done in your life which you realized when once done, it need not be done again. Name one thing that you did that can, that can tick that box. Tell me about a site that perhaps you traveled across the world to witness and then you decided, yeah, I've seen the Leaning Tower now. I no longer need to see anything else. That's it, I'm satisfied. I've seen the Eiffel Tower. I've seen the Taj Mahal. I'm now pleased. I'm now satisfied. My eyes have fulfilled their purpose. I no longer need to see anything again. Give me one thing that you've seen that you can say that you could have said at the end of that that's it. I've seen everything I need to see. One. I mean, the Taj Mahal is big, right? It's beautiful. Once you've seen the Taj Mahal, you've seen it all, haven't you? Don't they make this list, though? A hundred things to see before you die. I mean, why hundred? So what did you do for yourself that actually fixed the problem? You know, the Buddha comes and teaches us, happiness is yours. By default, happiness is yours. You don't need to do anything for happiness. Happiness is yours. But what you do is you look for happiness, expecting happiness to come to you from the outside. You set an expectation, and that is where attachment begins to take over. Craving picks up with craving and attachment for a happiness that you believe comes to you from the outside world, you open your eyes and now you long for it. And then you wait and you wait some more and you wait some more 
all the while vexation building up within you. You know what it's like to wait for something, waiting in a queue, how, how, ex how exhausting that is. Anyone here enjoy waiting? No one does. That's why they have fast everything today, right? Fast food, why fast? Why are people so grateful that technology is advancing at such a rapid rate? Because everything is becoming available at one's fingertips, at the touch of a button, at the end of a phone call, at the end of the press of a button. Instant. That is how things ought to be now. Because waiting for something is painful. So you know then that when you wait for something, the pain builds up inside. It keeps on building up. When you're waiting for that phone call from a loved one, you know that's painful. Just imagine your, your, your child flies off to another country, says, when I get to the other side, I'm going to, ring your, I'm going to give you a ring, mommy. So now he's flying. All the while you're hoping, I hope he's fine. I hope he's okay. I hope he's doing well. I hope the pilot doesn't fall asleep at the wheel. <laughs> Thankfully, they have autopilot now. I hope everything's fine. I hope the weather is okay. Just imagine on, news, on the news you say, right, there's been some turbulence in the air and there's been some trouble with some aircraft. The reporter says, we are still trying to find out which aircraft was affected, which airline. We, we don't know yet, but there's been some trouble. How many mothers will have a heart that will lit up in flames? light up in flames at the at the at the at the you know at this news how many mothers but only one aircraft has gone through this 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 problem but all of the mothers in the country if the plane departed from that land every mother there will start to weep fear takes over you know what happens when fear takes over you become a completely different creature don't you no more rational thinking. You start pacing up the room, up and down, up and down, up and down. That's why, you know, sit down. No, no, I'm just too nervous. I can't do that. Your heart starts pounding, starts sweating and heating up and all sorts. You get agitated. You become irritable. All these things take over because you think that's, that is what being a mother is. That is what attachment is doing to you. Understand the evil that attachment does to you. And be a good mother. The attachment does not get in the way of being a good mother. In fact, no. Let me correct that. Attachment does get in the way of you being a good mother. You cannot be the best mother that you could be because of attachment. Free yourself from attachment and then you will be the best mother. Because now your choices are always rational. You always make the right choices. Then your children, if they do something unexpected, you do something that you don't expect them to do, you don't get all angry and take it out on them. How many times, parents in the house, have you taken it out on your, on your children and then later on you thought, I shouldn't have been so harsh on them? Has that never happened to you? Plenty of times, right? You could write a book on this stuff, couldn't you? All the times where I crossed the, I crossed the line, I shouldn't have. And now it's left a scar with them for life. Now you can't change it. The times where you and your husband or your wife 
had I had an argument at home and the children were at home, but you couldn't you couldn't hold yourself back. Because you know, when when Dwesha strikes, it's a demon. When the demon strikes, right, your mind goes into a deep state of vexation. And the only thing you can think of at that moment is how do I relieve myself? You don't have the sense about you to evaluate the collateral damage that's going to happen as a result of that. It's impossible. In those moments, you're helpless. You know, I give you that. You're helpless in those moments. You know, it's like when you have a hiccup. I mean, an actual hiccup. Right? Aren't you helpless? Helpless. Because when it comes, when it builds up, and when you can't hold it back any longer, now you have to vent it. So ask yourself, weren't there times you knew the children were at home, but he did something to upset you, she did something to annoy you, and now the devil got you. And then, an hour later, you walk out to the patio, walk into the garden and think, I shouldn't have done that. I should have controlled myself. But now it's too late. What was said was said. The mother cursed at the father, the father cursed at the mother, swore at them, and the children heard it all. And now you think, I shouldn't have done that. But you can't take it back. Regrets. This is not because you're a bad mother or because you're a bad father. This is because you're bad to yourselves. That's why. Because you have allowed attachment, ignorance and attachment, to remain with you. You have allowed desire, aversion and delusion to remain with you. My ask of you, ladies and gentlemen, is you make a lot of effort, and I know you do, all of you in this room, you make every effort to free yourself from, you know, to, to ensure that you have three square meals on your, on, your, on, your, on, your, on your table. You work hard to ensure that there's a roof above your head. You, may, you work hard to ensure that your children have a good education, that you are safe, that you have a backup plan in case the worst comes. You make sure that you have a plan in case the tsunamis come. You have plans for that as well. People have bunkers in case there's a nuclear warfare. Right? People do that. But what about when desire strikes? What is your strategy? And when does it strike? You don't know. You know, if America falls out with us, I have a feeling they'll give us a bit of a warning that there's a nuclear weapon heading towards you. I think, given the distance between the two countries, that will give us enough time to get on a ferry and cross across to India or somewhere. <clears throat> but what about when desire strikes? Does it come with warning? Does desire tell you, hey, at 12.35 tomorrow, I'm going to come to you. So brace yourself. Prepare yourself, because I'm going to come and attack you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you lustful thoughts. And I'm going to put those thoughts in your mind when you're going to be somewhere, you know, among your friends, maybe at, when you're at work. Hmm? As I say these things, I want you to 
you know, I want you to think about whether these things have never happened to you in your lives. When I, when I come and strike, I'm going to put lustful thoughts in your head and you're going to be on the bus. Now save yourself. You can either relate to this personally or you've seen people to whom this has happened. And then what do they do? You're on the bus, lustful thoughts come to you. Now, vexation. Now the mind is vexed. This is like a pressure cooker and the pressure has built up. Thankfully, you have that nozzle on the top that releases a little bit when the pressure builds up. And then with a the whistle, the steam blows out. But what if you locked it? That's what happens when lust strikes and you're in the bus and you know that you can't vent yourself. But there are others who cannot contain themselves. And then what do they do? They end up with a black eye. They end up disgracing themselves, their families, their children, their parents, and sometimes end up in prison with broken limbs. I have sympathy towards them is what I'm telling you. I don't hate them. I love them. Because these are ailing minds. But, you know, that man, I'm the man I speak of, who was on the bus when lust stroke, when desire stroke, that man, I'm sure he's a good father. I'm sure he is a good father. I'm sure he's a good colleague. He's a good worker. If he'd managed to control himself and he'd gotten himself to work, he would have done a good hard day's work. He would have. He would have. He's a good citizen. He pays his taxes on time. He doesn't drop litter on the, ground, on the floor. He doesn't do that. He pays his bills. But now, lust has struck. Struck him. What does he do? His only fault, he didn't prepare himself for that. Because he was far too busy looking after his children, like you do, like you are. He was far too busy earning because he has to keep a roof above his head and food on the plate. He has to give his children a good education, so he's busy as a father. What he didn't do was look after himself. Don't you suffer when lust strikes you, when desire strikes you? Don't you really suffer? You know, when you know that your heart is now, it has been entangled, the thorns of lust when they prick you, hmm? the poison, of desire, when it stings you, don't you feel this? And you feel you were better than that. <clears throat> I'm not just talking about the sensual lust, like, you know, the fifth one. That's not, I'm, that's not just what I'm talking about. I'm talking about anything that your mind desires. You know, when, when the mind begins to desire something, ladies and gentlemen, you have no rest until you have achieved it, right? That's what happens normally. If you feel like you want something, thankfully, most of you have the means to get it with little effort. That is when people consider them to have, be successful. What is a successful life? If you ask someone, they'll tell you, when I want something, if I can get it with little effort, I'm a successful person. Not by the Buddha's word. By the Buddha's word. If you are someone who doesn't want anything, then you're successful. 
You have what you need. Needs and wants are very different things. The body needs, the mind wants. An untamed mind wants things limitlessly. Because one thing after the other, after the other. All you need is someone to come along and say, hey, there's this new thing in town. There's this new restaurant in town. There's this new dress at the boutique. You gotta try it. Shall we order it? And after you've seen it, if you've experienced it in some way, now you want it. You know what you are like when you want something. And likewise, you also know what you're like when, when what you're like when you dislike something. You will you, you will fight to the end until you have distanced yourself from it. See, all that while, where's the peace? Where's the mental peace? How do you learn to live with someone when you don't like anything about this person? You'll ask me, when would I ever find myself in that situation? So I'm in answer. Well, when you get married to the wrong person. How about then? I ask you this question. Right? This will help you determine how successful you are in your lives by the Buddha's word. You're married. Just imagine this situation. You're the man or the woman. Either way, you're married. And you find out your spouse has cheated on you. And it's been happening many times. You've asked them previously, is there anything going on? They've said no. So they've lied to you and they've cheated on you. So some, one fine day you come, you, you come across this and you, you find out that this has been going on. Now there's nothing they can do to hide it because you have all the evidence. You ask them about it and now they're speechless. So then they reveal it all to you. <clears throat> Here's my question to you. From here on, can you live with them, loving them the same way that you did until that day? Look after them, feed them, wash their clothes, if that is what you do at home, be his or her companion, make that cup of tea in the same loving way that you always did. Not look at your children with resentment. Not look at him or her with disgust. The reason you can't do that, if you can't do that, is because you personify badness, evilness, ungratefulness. You think these are people who do these things. But that is what I say is wrong. The reason I love the sinner is because I see that it is the sin that has tainted him. He's not the sinner. It's the sin that has fouled him. So remove the sin from the sinner. What do you have now? Now you have a saint. So if anything you want to pick a fight with, not anyone, if you want to pick a fight with anything, it should be the defilements. And all defilements are rooted in ignorance and attachment. So why do people pick fights with somebody else? See, if you'll understand this Dhamma, ladies and gentlemen, you can live happily married lives. I know monkhood is not for everyone. But amongst attitude, that is for everyone. You're all entitled to that. Amongst attitude, that needs to come first. No point monkhood coming first and the attitude coming 
later. Because if you can't wait till then, chances are usually the monkhood goes away as well. You need the monk's attitude to come to you first. So a monk's attitude, you're all entitled to. What is a monk's attitude? For you to be able to see that when you look at someone and you think that this is an individual, you think this is your husband, you think this is your wife, this is not what's really going on. This is merely how you perceive them. If this person is in fact your husband or a husband, why is it that only you see them that way? Why doesn't anyone else in the world look at this person and think, ah, husband? Thankfully they don't, right? <laughs> so what about him is husband? I mean, you can say he's got... Usually he won't have long hair. <clears throat> Let's say he's got, uh, he's, got, uh, he's, got, he's got long ears. Hmm? Unusually long ears. Everyone will look at that and go, he's got long ears, hasn't he? Everyone will say that. You'll say that, your friends will say that, uh, your colleagues will say that. Everyone in the world will look at that, he's got long ears. Let's get him into the Guinness book of long ears. Right? But you're the only person in this world who's going to look at this person and go, husband. So what about this package is husband, I ask you? Is it in the package? So then where does husband live? In your minds. So husbandness lives only in your perceptions. You, so therefore, once, because husbandness lives in your perception, now you create expectations for husbandness where? In your mind. What's this poor guy going to, can, can do about that? He's helpless. You decided that you want, to, you want to look at this person and create husbandness inside, and now everything that comes with husband, the, 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 the qualities, the attributes, the characteristics, all that, to, that is to do with husband, because you, know, you learned from your mother, you learned from your sister, you learned from your friends, what a good husband should be like. You learned it right on the internet, right? The worst place you can find information about these things, but you go there, you read the blogs, Right, you find out what should a good husband be like. So now, armed with all this, you know, this is like a, you know, a, a threat coming towards this, this, this innocent person. But what's going on is you're building this picture of what husbandness needs to look like, and now you have it. Now you project all that on this poor guy and expect him to tick all those boxes. Really, he's not a husband. He's not a husband. This is just a mind and body. No part of this is husband. This is, this is an arm. Hmm? This is the body. This is the chest. This is the, the, this is the lower body. Legs. This is the, the head. Ears. Eyes. Nose. Mouth. That's what this is. Take one step further in. You have muscle. You have bones. You have blood. This is what you have. Then you have the mind, of course. There is a chitta. A chitta that arises and passes away. A chitta arises when presented with an object. And that object could be anything. Could be a person. Could be a flower. Hmm? Could, be, could be an ice cream cone. Could be anything. 
presented with an object, a chitta arises and passes away. The whole purpose of this chitta is to recognize, perceive what that object was. That's it. That's why if you were married, say, to someone, and they, they go to the sasana, they become arahants. Right? You walk up to them and go, hubby, and the arahant in one is going to go, no be. <laughs> no way. They'll know what you mean because they'll be able to relate to you. They can understand why you're calling them husband. But they're not going to reciprocate those feelings. They won't perceive you as a wife. They won't. So you're not going to get husband-like treatment from them because they they don't perceive you as a wife. Because what you see is what you get with them, mind and body. Their chittas arise and pass away, all the while just perceiving the object that was presented to it. That's it. But they, are, they understand why you feel this way. They do. And therefore what they'll do is, they'll give you the Dhamma. They'll tell you, sit down. Let me talk to you. For once, listen to me. <laughs> For once, let me speak. Can I have the microphone, please? Now listen to what I have to tell you. You think that I'm your husband, right? That's why you still have these feelings towards me. But dear sister, I don't have these feelings towards you. Now don't be shocked when I say this. Don't think how ungrateful. It's not so. It is only out of gratitude that I speak to you right now. You You are illusioned. You've created this, this illusion in your, in your mind in which you see a husband. I'm helping you make sense of what the Sarahat Nuhansi is going to tell you in that moment, at that moment. Where is, what is husband about this person, I ask you? See, when this person goes to work and he's with his boss, is he husband now? No. But what does the boss expect in this person? His subordinate, his employee. His worker, right? But so is he the worker then? He's not. Now he comes back home and he's with his children. Children go, Daddy. So is he daddy now? What part of worker did he leave at at the office when he came home? <coughs> Nothing. So don't you see that these individuals that you create in the world are all projections of your perceptions. You perceive all this and then you project them on them. And then, here's the worst thing about it, you expect them to behave in the ways that you want them to. Now with those expectations come what? What goes hand in hand with expectations? Absolutely. Disappointments. Then you ask me, why can't this person behave in a way that doesn't disappoint me? (laughs) So you bring them here to the monastery. (laughs) And then you come and tell us, Swami my husband, He doesn't listen to anything I tell him. He's so stubborn. Can you please talk to him and tell him to be a little bit more understanding for all the sacrifices I'm making on his behalf? Please, can you talk to him and give him some advice? You're barking up the wrong tree, I tell you. Because the problem is not with the husband. Because if the husband were to say the same thing about his wife, the problem is not with the wife. You create these expectations and then you project them into the world and now you're setting yourselves up 
for disaster. Every time you are disappointed in life, ladies and gentlemen, prove me wrong if you can. Deny what I'm explaining to you right now if you can. Every time you've been disappointed in life, it is because you said you projected an expectation on someone or something that was not cut out for that job. What you have here is a son of God, not your husband. Hmm? If you read the Holy Bible, it will tell you this is a son of God. If you read the Holy Quran, it will tell you this is a son of God. What right do you have to claim him to be your husband? Which chapter in the Bible says that this is your husband? Show me. <clears throat> and if you read the Tripitaka, it will tell you this is just Vipaka. Yeah. This is just Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinyana, the five aggregates. So the Holy Bible and the Quran will tell you this is the Son of God, but if the Tripitaka will tell you this is just the five aggregates. Nowhere will it say it is your husband, except on your marriage certificate. But who wrote that? People just as ignorant as you are. See, we live in a very two-dimensional world. We don't see the third dimension. This is the third dimension. When you're ignorant, you don't see the third dimension, the real dimension. What I'm helping you to try and do is to at least dip into it from time to time. At least dip into it. Dip into the cool waters of the Dhamma and see how it pacifies you, how it cools you and soothes you. I've submerged myself in it. I'm asking you to take a dip. Just put your, just put your toe into it and see what it feels like. I, I swim in it. One day I want to drown in it. See, once you see the world as Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vinyana, here's what you do. Now you only expect what Rupa is supposed to do. Tell me what Rupa is supposed to do. Arise and pass away. That's what. <clears throat> Last week I told you about this. Yato yato sammasati. Skanda. Kanda nangudeyabya. There you go. Now we see the link to last week's talk as well. Kanda nangudeyabya. Labati piti pamujya. If you can contemplate on the fact that Rupa, by nature, merely arise and pass away. In other words, they are just manifestations of causes. Expect that of Rupa, you will never be disappointed. I tell you that. It's okay. If there's one expectation you can have on Rupa, expect them to be manifestations, expect them to arise and pass away, be characteristically anicca and anatta, you'll be fine. But expect anything else from them. Every expectation will only lead you to disappointment. That's why you're always frustrated. You're frustrated with your children, you're frustrated with your sister, you're frustrated with your brother, you're frustrated with your mother, you're frustrated with your husband and your wife and your brother. Who, who creates this frustration for you, I ask you? Exactly. 
So why do you point your finger at other people and tell, and tell them off for, for causing all these frustrations in your life? Huh? Who's responsible for your suffering? Who? Then tell me who's responsible for your happiness? Yes. This is why the Buddhist, Buddhist philosophy is empowering. See, I'm teaching you the reality of everything. You just need to understand the reality of things. Then you stop setting these undue expectations. The only reason you set these expectations is because you don't understand their, their, their true nature. That's all. You know, do you force yourself to see your, your wife or your husband? Or does it come to you naturally? It comes to you naturally. So you don't force yourself to do that. It just comes to you naturally. But you don't know why it happens. One fine day you think that this is this person to me and then from there on you, you perceive it in that way. You can't, stop yourself. You, you, you can't stop yourself when it happens. That's because you don't know the causes that lead to that. The Buddha comes into this world and he teaches us the principle of dependent origination. He teaches us why things originate. What are they dependent on? What are the causes that lead to the origination of something? Once you figure that out, now anything that you, you don't want, anything, Anything you don't want, you can figure out the causes and work on the causes. You need not worry about the result. You need not worry about the effect. Just work on the causes and the effect will be dealt with. Now, answer this question for me. When you see this person as your husband, don't you suffer as a result? Why do you suffer as a result? Because you have expectations, right? First of all, you have an expectation that they should be mine. That's the very first expression, because whose husband? My husband. I'm using a husband example because there are more women folk today in the, in the talk than, than there are men. So I have to address my audience, right? So you don't worry about husbands, you can. Take an appropriate example, whatever floats your boat, okay? So. When you, when you see a husband, the first thing you think is, my husband. See, now, here's what you're doing, ladies and gentlemen. Ask God, and God's going to tell you, one of my children. Ask the next man. Ask God about the next man. What is God going to say? One of my children. Next door, man. Person next door. One of my children. Hitler. Ask God who that is. One of my children. What about the people who died in the Holocaust? Ask God. Children. To God, everyone's the same. All are children. So God loves all the same. If you read the Bible, that's what the Bible will say. If you read the Tripitaka, the Buddha will say, Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankara Vinyan. What about the man next door? Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankara Vinyan. Two doors down? Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankara Your worst enemy? What? You still have some? <laughs> I, I catch you out. <laughs> Worst enemies. <laughs> How dare you? How can you have enemies? You're on the path to Nibbana. <laughs> Your best friends? Rupa Vedana, Sanya Sankara Vinyan. So all there is, is Rupa Vedana, Sanya Sankara Vinyan. Who gives you the right to call him husband? If you understand that all there is is Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankara Vinyana, which I will refer to as the five aggregates from here on, if you, if you see that them as the five aggregates, you only set that expectation on them. The, by the same token, who, would, who in this room, who is in their right mind, would use this 
to eat would you eat this would you would you even try your dog at home might yeah because the dog doesn't understand this but you don't because you understand that this is a pen you understand that the only expectation that you can have of this is to write that is your understanding of this that is because you are wise about this and you are not ignorant about this now let's say you become ignorant about this now what are you going to do you might start to eat it you might start to chew on it and on here it says this is harmful if ingested consult your physician hmm then it's going to cause you all sorts of damage all sorts of harm because because of ignorance see how ignorance leads to suffering ignorance leads you to set undue expectations on things when they are not due when they are when you are not supposed to set those expectations the same thing happens here this is a child of god these are the five aggregates how can you set an expectation that they cannot fulfill and then expect to be satisfied expect to be content expect to be happy why don't you have this expectation of your friends that they will never lie to you don't you i ask you don't you have an expectation on your friends on the person that you believe is your friend your best friend that they will always be loyal to you don't you what right do you have to set that expectation because there are a best friend only in your mind so therefore you set an expectation that they will always be loyal to you and then you expect it of them and if they don't sometimes you might even slap them you're the one setting the expectation how come they're the one who's getting punished see when you punish others for your sins karma gets you don't be messing with god's children <laughs> he will punish you if you read the bible it will say there's a god the buddha talks about the five aggregates he talks about vivaka <clears throat> see if you want to think of it you can think of it this way vivaka is what gives you something it's also what denies you something give or deny there is vipaka yeah there you go so what you give is what you get what you have given you get back what you have denied others you are denied if you want to call it that call it that when you say god i hear you say give or deny yes that's why in the singhalist term is deva deva is to give to give they call it devi anvahanse to give you know god like people who believe in god right, they believe that everything happens in life by god's will right the good and the bad stuff so then you got to you have to ask this question if god loves us all and he loves us as his own children why does he make us suffer why are the why, why are the why are there wars in the world why do innocent people die in the wars people will ask now there's a war going on in gaza 
Is it still going on? People tell me I only get my news from people who bring me news. Is it still going on? There you go. So they, uh, they must be innocent children, maybe infants, right, who are struck by the airstrikes and so on. So people ask these questions nowadays. You get these questions in sermons and so on. Why, why you know, if, if, if God exists, why does God deal with innocent people in this manner? So then my question is, how do you know they're innocent? But then the, the infant is innocent. They've not caused anyone any harm. That's because you are assuming that this is when it started. If you ignore the fact that there were, there were lives after this, or before this, and lives after this, now you are speechless. You have no way of reconciling this, this situation. Then you will have to agree that God is unfair. So by the same token that you deny the existence of previous lives, you will also have to deny. You'll, all have, you'll, you'll also have to accept that God is unfair. My point of view is, let's accept God. I have nothing against that. Yes, but in this, this is my definition of God. So does God exist? Yes. What exists? Giving or denial exists. But who creates God? You create God. You create your own God. If you've given, you get that. If you've denied, you're denied that. Deny love, see what happened to you. Stop smiling for, for, for three months and see if anyone's going to smile at you. See, I'm smiling at you now and what are you doing? There you go. I've created my God. If I want to smile, just smile at someone and then smile back at you. If you want to get slapped, what's one of the sure and short ways of getting that? Walk up to a stranger. Huh? Slap them. See, you create your own God. As far as I, you know, the way I perceive this, ladies and gentlemen, is Buddhist philosophy has empowered me. I like that sense of freedom. I like that sense of accountability that I get with that as well. Because with great power comes great responsibility. Today, I have the power to determine what's going to happen to me. I can either change the environment, because you know, there are things I've done in the past. Right? I mean, it's unimaginable what Buddhism has offered me, I tell you. There are things I've done in the past. It's like throwing a stone up in the air. If you know that you've, stone, you've, you've, you've thrown stones up in the air and you know about this, then you can make the choice of stepping one step forward, moving one step forward, because now when the stone drops, it's not going to be on your head. So you can change the environment and change the results of your deeds. Those deeds will no longer be able to manifest. That's what becoming a Sotapan is all about. There are plenty of deeds that both of us, we've all done, that are going to ripen in the four great hells. But they will only come back to as consequences if you are born in the four great hells. What the Buddha teaches you is, how do you escape from the four great hells once and for all? So that all of the deeds that have been done, that are meant to come back and punish you, they can all be Invalidated. All be invalidated. You can do the bad deeds and run away. This is like a get out of jail free card. It empowers you. 
But until you figure out this principle, until you've come across this philosophy, now you have to suffer for the deeds you've done. You have to. That doesn't empower you. That's like being put in a prison. And then you have to, you're at the mercy of the prison officers. Buddhism has empowered me, and I want, I want it to empower you as well. And then the other thing that it helps you do is, now you know that deeds come back to you as results. So therefore, you can decide what your tomorrow is going to be like. You can create your own God. Whatever you want, give it. It'll come back to you manifold. Whatever you want, you don't want, deny it from coming to others. If you don't want to suffer, what's one of the best things you could do? Hmm? Exactly. Helps, helps suffering come into others. That's what I'm doing right now. Because I don't want to suffer. As I don't want to suffer, I'm going to try and teach you how not to suffer. If I want you to suffer, if I make you suffer, then I make myself suffer. That's, that's, that is the phenomenon, that is the principle of the world, that is the principle that governs everything. Would you rather it be that way, or would you rather that someone else call the shots? What do you like? <clears throat> exactly. Are, are, you, are you happy when you're in a, in a relationship and you don't get to decide anything? Are you happy with that? When they keep calling all the shots? but then they keep dictating everything that has to happen. At some point, you're going to realize that, you know, you're like a bird in a cage. Right? This is just torture. This is not what I signed up for. There has to be some sense of, you know, I have to be able to say something and, and have at least a few things my way. You feel that way. Here's what I'm asking you to do. This is the key to open the cage and fly out. Now you can be whatever you want. You can be free. This is vimukti. Freedom. This is liberation. That's why they call Nibbana liberation. It liberates. It frees. You know, you're no longer strangled. You no longer have to be someone else's pet. You can be free. That's why if you understand this properly, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to go begging, borrowing and stealing. You can become your own God. Make your own choices. If you want to be happy tomorrow, help others be happy today. You will certainly be happy tomorrow. So coming back to what I was talking about earlier, why you suffer? It is because of your expectations that you set on things. You can even set undue expectations even on this. If you expect this to be a pen, but Swami says it is a pen. Uh -huh. It looks like a pen. It is a manifestation of matter and energy. This is a mere manifestation of matter and energy. This is just matter configured in a certain arrangement. If you expect this to be a pen, when this breaks, you will come crying saying, my pen has broken. There is no pen to break. This is merely a manifestation of matter. This is an arrangement of matter. The constituent components that have gone into making this pen, the elements, the molecules, the atoms, they have no understanding that this, they have come together to form a pen. So why do you set expectations on them? Just think about it like that. 
you know, this is made of plastic, right? Whatever the, what are the, whatever the molecules that have gone into making this, there are atoms that have gone into making this. How can you expect an atom to be a pen or to be part of a pen? What gives you the right to decide that? You say it's a pen. God says, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. Oh, they're my atoms. <laughs> expect an atom to behave like an atom. Then it's fine. What do atoms do? They come together and then they disperse. Give them enough energy, you can bring them close together. Give them enough energy, and they disperse. That's what atoms do. See? Take a simple example. This is a molecule of water. That's fine, right? Yes, H2O. You have a molecule of water. These are atoms. This is an atom of oxygen, an atom of hydrogen, and another atom of hydrogen. These three atoms are now held together in covalent bonds. So these are, these are bonds that keep these atoms together. Energy is keeping these atoms together. When you, when you open the tap, lots of this fill a pot. Now you want to make a cup of tea. Then what do you do? You take it and you put it on the stove. Once it's on the stove, now you, put the, you, you, you light up the fire. What does fire do? Provides energy. That's what fire does. It provides energy. No, it doesn't heat it up. It provides energy. That's what it does. Right? Think in the third dimension. These are conventional terms, heating up, boiling, and so on. Right? But in the third dimension, we're talking about energy, matter and energy. That is all there is. Transfers of energy, right? transfers of matter converting to energy, energy converting to matter. All these things are going on in there. And you might ask me, what is the relevance to Buddhism, Swami? You're talking physics now. <laughs> physics is an attempt to explain a small, in, in, a very, in a very narrow way, although it has its truths, in a very narrow way, the, the reality of this world. Chemistry does the same, biology does the same, but they're all talking about entities. That is where the physicists get it wrong. They talk about entities, so physicists talk about what happens to water. Whereas what I'm about to explain to you is that there is no water here. These are just three atoms together because of energy. But when they are together, they behave in a certain way. They behave in a certain way. They wouldn't behave in this way if they were like this. If they were like this, they wouldn't behave in the same way. Now, this has its own characteristics, this has its own characteristics, but when these two come together, now it has very different characteristics. So, here's what you need to get into your heads, ladies and gentlemen. Things behave in certain ways. They, they demonstrate certain behaviors when they're together. It's like you when you're among your friends. Now, don't you come together as groups to, to achieve certain, you know, certain things, achieve a specific purpose? When you are together in one group, you do certain things. When you're in a different group, you do different things. Right? So you have, a, um, give me a club. The Lions Club. Right? When, you are in the when, you are, when you're a member of the Lions Club, you behave in a certain way. You're, you're there for a specific purpose. 
right? So you, you behave in a way that, that demonstrates the values of being a lion. I mean, not that lion. <laughs> a member of the lion's club, right? That lion, right? And then the same members can also be you know, a member of the, say, the Intra Club or the Rotaract Club, right? Or maybe a Toastmaster. And when you're there, now you behave in a different way because the environment in which you are dictates the behaviors that you have to demonstrate. Just like when you're here right now. Now we're here, we are at the temple. But I wouldn't expect you to behave like this when you have a party at home. Don't. Don't put your uturus halwa and have your patkade. Don't be like that. Because you don't behave like that there. When you're with your children, you behave in a certain way. Right? But it's the same person, isn't it? Yeah. So in the same manner, atoms, when in the presence of other atoms, in other words, when they take a certain arrangement, they demonstrate characteristics, qualities. Now, when you, when you heat it up, what you're doing is you're adding energy. You add energy. And once you start adding energy, these bonds, they start to break. So now two hydrogen atoms, they also have things called uh, hydrogen bonds and so on. Right? These, these, these bonds, they start to break because you're giving energy. Because, you know, it's, it's a bit like if you had three, three children stood together and you asked them to start turning. In other words, you, you, you ask them to exert energy. Right? They're going to start turning and they're going to start extending their arms and so on. Now for them to, they're going to need more space than they did when they were stationary. Yeah, so they're going to need to spread apart. That's what happens when you add more energy, things need more space. So when you add energy to this, it needs more space. That energy takes up the space. More on that later. But these atoms, they start spreading apart. These molecules, they start spreading apart. So, I, so where is the water? Now where's the water? Now it's no longer water. In other words, what's going on is because they, are, they, are now, they now start spreading apart and this turns into steam, right? So these, these, if there were lots of these, so imagine this is a water, water molecule, another water molecule. These are all water molecules, right? Some energy will go into breaking bonds, others will go into to dispersing them. So therefore, add energy. And now these molecules can't stay too close to each other. So they'll start spreading apart. So this you will call liquid water. This you will call steam. If you, if you take out more energy from this state, now what do you have? You have ice. It takes a solid form. You have ice. Give it more energy, becomes water, becomes a liquid, becomes a gas. Take, more, take energy out of the system, becomes a liquid, goes back into being a solid. So what state is water molecule? Uh, is water. No, I can't call it water. H2O, right? What state does water take, H2O take? Is it a liquid? Is it a gas? Or is it a solid? It is? It takes... What, that's why you say you have to say at room temperature. Don't you, you have to say that, right? So if someone asks you, is water a liquid, air, or gas? Liquid, air, or gas? No, no. 
solid, liquid or gas, if someone asks you, if, is, is water solid, liquid or gas, you'll have to ask, in what environment? So then you say, at room temperature and pressure, it's a liquid. It's a liquid. Meaning, if you, at room temperature and pressure, there's a certain amount of energy in that system. In that energy system, these molecules, they take this structure, this arrangement. These are all arrangements, ladies and gentlemen. This is another arrangement, this is another arrangement. Now, this is a, I, I wanted to show, use this to explain to you what's really going on, because we've done this stuff for chemistry and physics and so on, so you understand this principle. Now let's apply the same principle to other things. I used the example of the pen earlier, remember? And I asked you, what is this? You told me this is a pen. Is this really a pen, or is this merely matter arranged in a certain way? Is this matter arranged in a certain way? Energy keeps this in this shape. Give more energy, it's going to start to melt. That's what happens. So is a pen this shape, or is it like a liquid? What is a pen? What shape is a pen? Exactly. See, you can't say that. Now you're going to have to say, at room temperature and pressure, a pen takes this shape. But there's a deal. Once this melts, you don't longer call it a pen. So therefore, the names that we use are merely references to states, arrangements, in a given environment. Right? So then I come back to you. Let's go back to your husband. So who is your husband? So who is your husband then? Is he a man? Is your husband a man? What is a man after all? Now, now think, you know, relate to this, in, relate to that in relation to this. Because we've just discussed what a pen is. We've discussed what water is. I ask you, is water a solid, liquid, or gas? And then initially you said it's a liquid, and then you realize, uh -uh, wrong answer. It all depends on the environment, right? So then I asked you about the pen. Is the pen something that takes this shape? And then you have to tell me, at room temperature and pressure, yes, it takes this shape. But if you add temperature, if you add heat, if you add energy, this melts. And at some point, it will also become, you know, become vapor. You can evaporate this. Yeah? So, coming back now to your husband. Easier man. <laughs> Mind and matter. This is just matter in a certain arrangement. That's all it is. Can we not melt your husband? I can read minds, by the way. So don't you be saying how I wish. <laughs> Can't you melt? Yes. Of course you can. All you need is, I mean, you know, this is what happens when you put them in a coffin one day. Yeah? Decomposes. If decomposition, see the word itself, decompose, means previously it was what? Composed. Now it's decomposing. Later on, it will recompose into something else. Maybe a pineapple. Maybe an apple tree. See, if you let the cows graze where you laid down your husband's body, soon enough, your husband will become a what? <laughs> First, you'll think it becomes the grass, yes, and then becomes, it goes back to being what he was when he was alive, right? Think about it. I'm explaining to you a profound truth. 
So once you begin to see that all material things in this world are merely manifestations, in other words, energy keeping matter in a certain shape and form, now you stop setting expectations on the form that it is right now and your projections on it. That's what you stop being able to do. Or rather, that is what you're able to stop doing. As long as you see this as a pen, this is what we call a fixed object, an entity. If you see this pen as an entity, you can't stop yourself from projecting everything you know about a pen onto this, but ask the atoms what it is. If the atoms could speak, would they say we are a pen? Would they? No. One of the best examples I, I can give you is when you ask a bunch of people to stand blindfolded. They are blindfolded and you, stand, you ask them to stand in this order. What do you see? You see a circle, but they're blindfolded. Do they know that they're members standing together to form a circle? Do they need to then? For this circle to manifest, do any of these need to know? No. No one here needs to know that they are stood in a circle. Because a circle is your projection. A circle manifests. If you don't see this as a manifesting circle, you will see this circle as an entity. In other words, this is, not, this is independent of causes, is how you will see it. Yeah? But if you begin to see it causes and causes and effects, now the circle is a product of causes. It is not a fixed circle. It is not an entity of a circle. It is not a thing. The circle is not a thing. It's just a manifestation. So when one person walks away, now you don't, you don't start complaining, hey, you, come back. You've just, you've just broken my circle. What is he going to say? What circle? What do you mean circle? I don't know anything about a circle. Is what this person's going to say, right? Because he was never a member of your circle. He never intended to be. Did he need to be? No, because it was you who projected a circle on this. Remember when we were younger, we were asked to you know, join the dots and draw pictures? Yeah? And how, how is it you were able to do that? Because exactly, in your mind, you can project these images. And therefore, you start drawing those, those, those lines and you create a picture out of it. The same is going on here. This is now, you see, the moment I draw it here, and if I ask you to fix this problem, let's say this appeared on your scholarship exam, right? And they say, something is wrong with this system. Fix it. What would you do? Here's what you'll do you'll erase this. And you'll draw it here. Why is that? You have a circle in your mind. This is called the Upadana Rupa. In other words, setting expectations on Rupa and expecting Rupa to behave in, in the way that you want them to. See, this is the cause of suffering. You are attached to this, therefore your expectation is this. So therefore when one starts going, going AWOL, no, 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 that doesn't work. Come back, come back, come back. This is exactly what happens with your husband. This is just mind and matter. Matter will perform as matter and a mind will perform as, as a mind. Minds are, mentally, are, are simply instruments of perception. That's what they are. They will perceive. So, I don't know whether you can stomach this, but I will give it to you anyway. You know that Ajaitanara monastery is exclusively for aspirants of Nibbana, right? 
right? So you knew it before you walked in through these gates, right? Okay. Take your husband. This is matter and mind. You project husband to this. So when you project husband to this, you expect 100% loyalty. Don't go there, so I'm in no answer. <laughs> you expect 100% loyalty, because that is what he promised on the Poru. As he put the ring on your finger, he said, till death do us part, I will always be yours, and I will forever be faithful and loyal to you. Because you projected husbandness onto mind and matter. This is just a mind. A mind that is laden with ignorance and attachment. Otherwise you should have married an Arahant. Whose fault is it that you didn't marry an Arahant? When you went looking for a partner, right? Whatever you're talking partner.lk. Do they have websites like that now? <laughs> I know they have shadi.com. So you go on partner.lk, right? And you put in the details. Did you select, can I please find, Arahants please apply. You had male, you had six foot tall, hmm? you had twenties, uh, you had a doctor, you had the profession that you wanted them to be in, of good descent, uh, born to good parents, respectable parents. Did you say, having understood Anichidukanatta as one of the requirements? You didn't. If, if you had, then it would be reasonable for you to expect that mind to be loyal. I'm trying to explain to you why, if there were moments of disloyalty, why it happened? If you, can, if you can understand why, then you begin to appreciate that out of compassion. Then hatred goes away. Anger goes away. Resentment goes away. And you can live a happy married life. I tell you, this is what they need to teach you at school, or at least before you decide to get married. But they don't. You know, young men and women, they should be brought to the temple first. This is what our ancestors used to do. They used to closely associate the Mahasangha. You've heard of the Gamai Pansalai Vavai Dagabai, right? Our culture was based on this. That's why I always say Sri Lanka gets, gets the Sri part because of the Sri Sambuddha Sasana. Take out the Sri Sambuddha Sasana, you no longer have Sri Lanka, you just have Lanka. They even have a hospital after that name. <laughs> but Sri Lanka, enriched by the Sri Sambuddha Sasana, without that we are not Sri. We're just Lanka, just ordinary Lanka. To be extraordinary, you have to be with something extraordinary. You have to associate with something extraordinary. You have to be in the presence of something extraordinary. You have to be in the presence of the truth, the Dhamma. That is what is extraordinary, because the Dhamma is what creates Buddhas into this world. It gifts us Buddhas. The Dhamma does. You know, if the Buddha is the child, the Dhamma is the womb. The Dhamma is the womb. The mother that gives rise to a Buddha. That's why the Buddha claims, the Dhamma is my teacher. So, I was talking about loyalty. Hmm? When you married this person, you, ex you projected husbandness. And then you always projected husbandness. Whenever you see him, husbandness. You, you projected it on this person. But ultimately what you have is just mind 
and matter. The nature of matter is it arises and passes away. This is just a rupa. Yeah, absolutely. But also, it has raga, desha, and moha. Matter doesn't have raga, desha, moha. But matter, by its very nature, arises and passes away. So then, this begins to age. But, but you can't stomach it. You know, when your loved one, your children even, right, your partner, once they, when they begin to age, right, or if they get a, maybe a cancer, right, or they start losing their hair, Right? Or they start getting you know, rashes all over their bodies, or you know, whatever. Right? The reason that it, it's, it's heartbreaking for you is because you have set expectations on this person. You think, this is not matter, this is my husband. This whole thing, this package is my husband. Who gave you the right to, 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 to claim that? And God says, no, my child. Tripitaka says, Rupa. And this is Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vinyana. Expect nothing more from Rupa than Rupa itself. The characteristics of Rupa, the Buddha says, Rupam Bhikkhve Anicca. See? Expect Anicchanas from Rupa and you'll be fine. Yadanichantan Dukkhan Yandukkhan Tadanatta. Rupa by its very nature has the characteristic of Anicca, meaning their manifestations. They're not fixed entities. And they cannot be separated. Let me explain to you what I mean by this word separation. You look at this. What is this now? Man, and therefore your husband. Yeah? Have you not separated this matter, this matter, this composition of matter as my husband's matter? Isn't that why when the person's dead, the ashes even mean a lot to you? Because even when, even when they have been transformed to ashes, who, still, who is that still? My husband, my husband's ashes. My wife's ashes, my mother's ashes, my, my father's ashes. They're ashes, it's just ash. That's just a bunch of, that's just carbon. But in your mind, you separate it. Once you throw it into the wind, right, or put it in the Ganges, what does Mother Nature do? Does, it, does, does she say, oh, well, no, 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 that is that, that woman's husband. Let's not, we can't use that. We can't use those ashes because they belong to that, that, that person. This is that, that mother's child, that, that, fa that, uh, that son's father, this wife's husband. So we had better get their permission first before we start using it. Do you think Mother Nature does that? What does Mother Nature do? She uses all of it and does whatever she wants to do with it. So whose were they after all? They were natures. But what happens when you project these things out into manifestations, you separate them. This is what I mean by separation. You, you give it some, a sense of ownership. You get them to belong to things. Let me ask you this question. This thumb that I carry on my right hand, who do you think it belongs to? Right now you're thinking, it's Swami Nuhan says. <laughs> Is it? Have you never donated blood? Whose blood? Then you'll ask me, before or after Swami Nuhan says? <laughs> before it was mine, but after it's somebody else's. Really? 
Once you put the blood, you know, once you've, you've done the transfusion and the blood is now in somebody else's body, does it not perform in exactly the same way that it did while it was in your body? Hmm? Does the blood say, whoa, hold on, we're in a different body now. This is an alien. Out, 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 let's get back, let's get back. Wrong, wrong, wrong place, wrong turn. We've taken the wrong turn somewhere. <laughs> does the blood do that? No. Because wherever the blood is, the blood does what blood is supposed to do. Because blood is nature's creation. It was created to carry oxygen around the body. Then that's what it does. That's what nature created blood for, not to be yours. How dare you call it your blood? Call it your blood and you're only asking for trouble. I'll, I'll prove this point to you. You know, you think the hair on your head is yours, right? Just imagine if someone were to take some hair out of your head. Right? Or if you, you, you maybe say you cut some hair off your head and you gave it to somebody. This is my hair. Carefully. Please, please hold it carefully. You know what they do? They put it on the ground and they start stomping and stamping on it. They jump all over it and then you know, they, they, they step on it. And then they, they burn it. Don't you feel that a part of you is being burned right now? Don't you say that this is insulting? How could they do something like that? That's my hair. See, you have now separated hair as your hair. Hair just does what hair does. It protects you from the heat. It's, a, it's a body's, one of the body's natural defense systems. That's what hair does. Hair does what hair does. But once you separate it, now it becomes your hair. Now you have expectations on it. That's why when it goes gray, it hurts you. But it doesn't hurt the hair. Because that's what hair does. That's what hair is supposed to do. It's supposed to go gray. That's what hair is supposed to do. It's supposed to fall. That is nature and how nature dictates. But once you separate something from nature, now you become the orchestrator. Or at least you think. Who's given you the right to do so? No one's given you the right to do that. Only you have given yourself the right, and for that you are punished. Aren't you? So who punishes you? Exactly. That's why we say, don't punish the sinner. They punish themselves. If someone were to come and hit me, you'll never see me hitting them back. Why should I when they have punished themselves? No man should be punished twice for the same crime, right? Don't you think so? Even in a court of law, you don't get punished twice for the same crime. Yeah? So if someone were to come and hit me, have they not created their own punishment by doing so? So then why should I take over that responsibility of punishing them when they've already done it for themselves? So you'll never see me hitting back. Because if I hit them, now what have I done? I have asked, I've done my crime, and therefore I will be punished. Now do you see why someone who has understood Buddhist philosophy doesn't retaliate? They don't retaliate, they don't fight back. There cannot be violence in Buddhist philosophy. If you have understood Buddhism, you cannot be a violent being. It's imp I, I, don't, I, I can't see how it makes sense. You have to be able to see everything equanimously. And then the only thing you see is if someone comes and hits you, the only thing you can think of is, what a pity. Because what they've just done 
if they, they've just created a rod for their own backs. Now they're going to be punished. So therefore, if someone's running towards me with a knife in their hand to stab me, I will tell them to stop. I will. Even when I become an arahant, I'll still them to ask them to stop. If possible, I'll even walk and if, I, if possible, I'll move out of the way. Why would I do that? Out of sympathy, out of compassion. Because if possible, I can stop them from committing a murder. Because if they do, then they're creating a rod for their own backs. If they inflict punishment on me, these are only punishments for my own sins. Because I believe in God. What I've given is what I get back. What I have denied. If I've denied life, I will be denied life. If I have denied comfort, if I have denied truthfulness, if I have denied loyalty, if I have denied someone a teacher, I will be denied one. If I have denied someone goodness in life, I will be denied goodness in life. If I have denied people wealth, I will be denied wealth. If I have denied people health, I will be denied that. But if I have given that to people, then I will get that. Now who's the God? Who's God? I am God. Don't cut that part and put online, okay? <laughs> You can all be God. Yeah. You can all be God. Because Buddhism empowers you. This is the, this is the teaching that empowers you. Now there are no questions that should, be un, shouldn't, should never be asked. No one says God cannot be questioned. Ask, by my token, God is the only one that you can question. Really. Some people say, you can't question God. He's infallible. Yes. God never makes mistakes. What you give is always what you get. Never mistaken. Remember, we talked about placing the order. If you place the order, that's exactly what you get. The order never got it. You know, they never got the order wrong. So God is infallible. Yes. But you can question God. You can question everything about God. In fact, God is the only thing you can question. Because you get to the answer, you get to the truth every time you question God. You know, this, <laughs> elevate yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, to this higher truth. Elevate yourselves. Doesn't this Dhamma enrich you? Doesn't it broaden your thinking horizons? Doesn't it actually free your, your, free your thought patterns and actually gets you, to, gets you thinking in, in life in ways that you never thought were possible? You know, when you felt that you were a little mouse trapped in a cage, don't you feel now like you're a bird that can soar in the skies in freedom? And spread your wings and as far as far and wide as you'd like. This is the Dhamma that liberates. That's why we call him the Vimukti Dayakyan Mahansa. He who gives us liberation. He who gives us freedom. He's the Buddha. He's the Father. I want you to be freedom fighters. Next week is Independence Day. Fight for your freedom. Carry the sword of wisdom. And carry the shield of compassion. Sword of wisdom in one hand, shield of compassion in the other. Go forward. Go forth. Slain the dragons. Slain the enemies of desire, aversion and delusion. 
with only two things, the sword of wisdom and the shield of compassion. Whenever you see people acting out with Raga, Desha and Moha, hold the shield of compassion. Remember, it is not them who's bad. It's not they who are bad. It's just Raga, Desha and Moha. So don't fight back. Don't attack them, but attack Ragadesha Moha. That's why you need the, 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 the sword of wisdom. Share with them a, a word of wisdom. The first word might be, I'm sorry. You have no idea if said with wisdom, how much merits just a single word, I am sorry, can earn you. Because it can bring down great enemies to their knees. When they think it's you who have wronged them, who mat what matters? Who's wronged whom? If they think it's you who's wronged them, just say sorry. It'll cool them down. Now they're prepared to hear what you have to say. Now you can use your sword of wisdom. Now you can explain to them. Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankara Vinyan Anicca Dukkha Anatta now you can start talking to them about compassion, about loving kindness, about giving and getting. Now you can help, make, help them make sense of, of life and they'll be grateful for it. Remember what happened to Angulimala? What weapons, what did the Buddha have with him? In his armory, he only has two things, the sword of wisdom and the shield of compassion. When Angulimala came running to him with a, with a dagger in his hand, I'm here to cut your, your thumb and the Buddha held his shield of compassion. He said, Angulimala, I know you are not the sin. You, are, you have only become a victim of Ragadvesha and Moha. So therefore the Buddha didn't fight back. The Buddha said, I have stopped Angulimala. Why are you still running? Angulimala got onto his knees. And now the shield no longer necessary. Out comes the sword. <laughs> it's the sharpest sword there is. It cuts through ignorance with one swoosh. One word of the Buddha is enough. The Buddha preaches the Dhamma, and Angulimala is a changed man. He sets down his weapons, and he rises like the phoenix from the dead. He rises up. He says, Buddha, I have understood the truth. I have realized the truth. Like something that was turned upside down, has now been turned right side up. What I thought about the world has now changed forever. From this day forth, I shall never hurt another soul because I see no need for it. I am free. The Buddha gives Angulimala liberation and he becomes a servant of the Buddha. What is the Buddha? The Buddha is the truth. It is the truth. It is Nibbana. He becomes a servant of Nibbana. So being a servant of Nibbana, he walks, he roams from town to town, village to village, country to country. He roams the world. With every step he takes, he spreads loving kindness and compassion. This man who used to be a monster, who was known to be a monster, People didn't see the change that had happened within him. 
So they fought back. When they saw Angulimala, they would attack him with rocks and stones and so on. Oftentimes, Angulimala would return from his arms rounds, wounded. But now this is a different man. This is a pure chitta. People don't know this. So therefore, they're committing terrible sins. Because now they're attacking not Angulimala, but Angulimala, the great Thero, the great Arahans. Ignorance is very unkind. Isn't it? Ignorance is very unkind. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, if this, if this person was, was, was wise, if the people who were attacked when Angulimala was, was, was a murderer, the ignorance that remained with them also remained with them once Angulimala became an Arahant. So now they, these people, the people whose families were, were killed and murdered when Angulimala was a, was a murderer, they still thought that this is the same Angulimala, in the same way that you think this is your husband. Because it is Angulimala who listened to the Dhamma, not those people. So they think this is still Angulimala, the one who killed my husband, the one who killed my wife, the one who killed my father and my children and took their, took their thumbs. This is the same man, so I should fight back. So they went looking for an eye for an eye. And in doing so, they inflicted punishment on he who should not be punished. In fact, he who should not be touched. <laughs> it's like dealing with, meddling with fire, meddling with an arahatan nuance. He who should not be even touched, people went and threw rocks at They attacked him. But what can Angulimala Thera do? He had to go on arms round, but he never fought back. Because now he was a changed man. So much so that on one occasion when he was asked to help deliver or at least you know, give his blessings for the delivery of a child, Angulimala was doubtful. So he went back to the Buddha and asked the Buddha, Venerable Sir, I have been requested to do this, but how can I pass my blessings? You're asking me to chant this stanza. How can I do so? Because in it it says, I have never hurt another being. And what did the Buddha say? Yes, in your previous life, Angulimala, but no longer. That day when you knelt in front of me, when you knelt down in front of me, you dropped your dagger and you picked up the shield of compassion and the sword of wisdom. On that day, you became one of my sentinels. From that day, you go around spreading compassion and loving kindness. Remind yourself of that, that transformation that happened in your life, and go and bless that mother and everything will be fine. And from that day on, we have the Angulimala Pirita. It works wonders. Many women who go into labor, they make use of that, but that's not just what it is for. Everyone can make use of the Angulimala Pirita. It is just a testament, testimony. It's an attestation of how much good a mind can do when it has been healed by the Dhamma. So when you look at your husband, You see your husband there, but you don't see mind and matter there. Therefore, you set expectations on your husband, when in fact, all there is, is matter and a mind. But a mind, of course, because you didn't marry an Arahatan Vahanse, a mind that is laden with Raga, Vesha, and Moha. Therefore, I was touching on the topic of disloyalty, right? What do you expect from a mind that is ridden with Raga, Vesha, and Moha? 
disloyalty. Because when the mind suffers from vexation, all it can think of, like a drowning man, will clutch at a straw. Right? He'll climb over his best friend if he has to, to save his life. Because in that moment, you're not aware of what's going on. You just want to save your life. Like a drowning man would do that, a mind that is vexing will go to any length, by hook or by crook, it will try to get out of that vexation. And so therefore, when presented with an object of sensual desire, sensual lust that arises in this mind, what do you expect? In, these moment, in those moments, ladies and gentlemen, they are not your husband. I'm not taking their side, by the way. Please don't misunderstand me. <laughs> and I'm completely against that because I have sympathy for this person. Because in doing what they're doing right now, you know how much punishments they're, they're, they're going to be bringing on themselves? By causing great distress to the people that expect them to be well-behaved and loyal to them, for breaking the promises that they, that they have made to keep for the rest of their lives. We should have sympathy on them as well. Just as much as I have sympathy on you. I have sympathy on the one who is, who is betrayed because they feel they are betrayed. That's why. Again, ignorance and attachment. I also have sympathy on the one who is betraying because they feel that they have to betray. So in my eyes, they're both individuals who should be dealt with sympathy and compassion. As God would say, my children, they're all the same. So in this way, as I've explained to you, this is just one example, right? In this moment, your husband is not your husband. He cannot think of it in those terms. So if ever you've been a victim of that, or you know someone who's going through a situation like that, maybe, maybe, you have a, maybe it's your daughter who's, who's suffering because her husband has cheated on her. If you can just try and explain this concept to her, you know, in, in, in a moment where they're willing to listen to you and understand and, and heed what you have to say. That's the thing though, you know, the best time to listen to the Dhamma is not when you are, when you are broken. The best time to listen to the Dhamma is when you are fine, when you don't have a problem, right? But people often come to the Dhamma, to the temple, you know, as a repair shop. They, they come here to be mended. It's, it's fine, we can mend broken minds, but it's much better to come when you're, when you're doing fine, when you're, when, you're, when you're fit, when you're mentally sane. And then it's easier to give you the Dhamma because you have the Prasada Chitta. You're joyful. But when you're so tensed and distressed and in, in a lot of agony and in mental pain, it's a bit difficult to, to give you the Dhamma because for the Dhamma to stick, you need to have a mind that is joyful. That's why the Buddha doesn't even preach the Dhamma to someone who's hungry. He says, go and feed this person first and then bring them back. So this is just one example, right? They will have, you'll have many other examples you can relate to. In this moment, I just, want to, I just want you to remember this. In this moment, your husband has forgotten the fact that he's your husband because it's, it's in the chitta that it lives. He's not a husband after all. You are not his wife after all. You are just mind and matter and so is he. But for him to think that you're his wife, he has to build it up in every chitta. Every chitta has to work on this. Initially, it has to think that I am a self, thinks about itself. Then it thinks I am male. Then it thinks I am married, therefore I have a wife. All of these things, level by level, it has to build on every chitta, like building up a, uh, you know, constructing a building. It has to happen in every chitta. But in this moment where it's deeply vexed, 
because an object of sensual lust has been placed in front of it, it cannot compute this now, irrational choices now. If you think that is irrational, what about thinking that he's your husband? Is that rational? It's irrational as well. Because all there is is mind and matter, the panchaskandha, the five aggregates. When we are ignorant of that, we project all these things in our minds onto a manifestation of mind and matter, and then we set expectations, and then it's you're just a ticking time bomb. So, if you've, if you've learned anything from today, there's just one thing. There are, there's lots more I, I'm more than happy and willing to share with you. But if at least some of this has made sense to you, have faith that Buddhism can heal you. <laughs> have trust in the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha can heal you, ladies and gentlemen. The Buddha can. Because his Dhamma is so profound. It's so potent. It's so powerful. As I said, it can cut through ignorance and go straight to the root. Straight to the root. It doesn't meddle around with the, you know, the bushes and the shrubs and so on. It goes straight to the root. This is the Dhamma that I have come here for. So I always tell you, don't come here to see me. Come here to see what I have seen. Because that is what liberates. <laughs> so may the force be with you. The force of the Dhamma. May it heal you. May it heal every, each and every heart. You are so blessed. You are so meritorious. To be here today, be in the presence of the Noble Triple Gem. And to help these words reach and, and heal. This is the ointment. This is the medicine that heals your heart, heals your soul. Experience it. It is free, by the way. If I were to charge you for one of these talks, how much would you think I should charge? How much is a yacht? Hmm? A yacht that promises happiness, how much is one? How much is a first-class ticket to Singapore? How much? A first-class ticket? Huh? Who knows, eh? Nowadays you don't know this stuff. How much is a first-class ticket to Los Angeles? Uh, you know, the land that promises happiness. How much is a first-class ticket to London? You've got, to fly, you've got to travel in style. If you're going to happiness, you've got to be, go there in style, right? Not like when you come here. Look at yourselves. <laughs> no color, no taste. Some of you don't even have hair on your heads now. <laughs> look at the Anagarikas. Huh? They used to look very presentable, but look at them now. No makeup even. So if that is how much a first-class ticket to a promised land costs, how much would one of these sermons cost? Thank you. That's why they're priceless. You're paying for it with merits. It's not rupees and cents you're paying for it for. You're paying for it with merits, which is why Guru Swami Nase always says, Never stop on merits. Do as many merits as you can. And whenever you do it, do it in the name of the Sambuddha Sasana. Don't make them personal offerings. Do them in the name of the Buddha Sasana. The Buddha Sasana is 
is freedom. That is what Buddha Sasan is. Sabba Papa Sakaranang, Kusala Supasampada, Sachitta Pariyodapanang. That is the Buddha Sasana. Do it for that cause. It is untainted. It's unblemished. There's no person here. It's just a it's just a cause. Do it for that cause. Yep. Okay. Let's conclude for today and transfer the merits. <clears throat> okay, so let us all take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, inviting the Swami Nuhase to deliver the sermon, listening to the sermon, and creating a conducive environment for all to listen to the Dhamma, practice the Dhamma, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in, the, in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasikas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down to the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Shibitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us transfer the merits that we have all acquired to all members of the Mahasangha, present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that amongst them are the nuns and monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these maids to my teacher, Guru Swami Nuhanse, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery and the Anagarik and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer this message and express our gratitude to, do, to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these talks, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them. May, by the power of these merits, they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer this maze to our devotees and friends of the monastery who for the sake of merits to help them attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana continue to sustain the Mahasangha by providing the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines as well as those who pass on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also transfer this message to our mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces. Our friends, our acquaintances, our teachers, our employers, our employees, our friends and those who have gone the extra mile on every occasion to do that, was, that which was good for us, to help us, support and assist us in every way, shape or form possible. May they all rejoice in these merits. By the power of these merits, may they also be free of any mental and physical ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they all rejoice in these merits, and by the power of these merits, may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who have committed themselves to protecting and preserving the Sambuddha Sasana. Let us transfer this message to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. May they all prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they rejoice in these merits and may this, by the power of these merits, may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer this message to our loved ones, those who have passed away in our name, to our forefathers, our ancestors, those who walked the surface of the earth before us and created an environment in which we, were, we are able today to practice 
and fulfill the Dhamma in peace and comfort. May they all rejoice in these merits. Just remind ourselves that it is in their blood, sweat and tears today we are able to live the comfortable lives that have been afforded to us. May they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also transfer these merits to all members of the armed forces as well as the police force who sacrifice their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation, as well as friends and foe who would have lost their lives in wars. May they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also transfer these merits to those who have lost their lives from natural disasters and calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, floods, fires, pandemics, and so on, reminding ourselves that in this infinitely long journey of samsara, they will all have been mothers and fathers to us, brothers and sisters to us, friends and acquaintances to us. They will have gone the extra mile and left no stone unturned to bring us goodwill and comfort. May they all rejoice in these merits. Out of compassion and loving kindness to all of them and a sense of gratitude for all that they have done for us, let us transfer all the merits that we have all acquired today to all of them. By the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, may by the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahants on this blessed land. And may you and I and everyone who's helped make this program a success become a Rahatan Vahanse or an Arahat Teranin Vahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. And the members of the Mahasangha will transfer the blessings to you now. Raga Ginnidatnva Dvesha Ginnidatnva Moha Ginnidatnva Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Tara Vetnva Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Tara Vetnva Mamada Sialu Loka Sialu Satnayo Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Tara Vetnva Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Tara Vetnva Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Tara Vetnva Raga Gini Niveva Dvesha Gini Niveva Moha Gini Niveva Nivan Sapal Abeva Nivan Sapal Abeva Nivan Sapal Abeva Tulvan Gesu Sianant Mahabuna Belin Silo Silo Satayoma Nibana Paramasokain Sukhita Vitva 
साधु साधु साधु